Well, it's great to worship together with our church family on a weekly basis. So thankful that we have the liberty to do that. God is gracious. Amen. Amen. Last week, we had a really significant, important day on our calendar. It's a day that is celebrated year after year on the last day in October, October 31st. Anyone know what that day is? Boom! I knew our church family would say Reformation Day. I don't know what else could have possibly been in anyone's mind. October 31st, 1517. I got to put this down. It's going to distract me. There we go. October 31st, 1517 was the birth of the Protestant Reformation. A German priest named Martin Luther had been wrestling with internal grievances with the corruption of the Catholic Church of his day paired with what he was reading in Scripture, especially what he was reading in the book of Romans. Mind you, we are in a series right now on the book of Romans, so go ahead and turn there if you'd like. And as he was reading through the book of Romans, wrestling with what was being taught, what was being practiced, he found himself objecting to 95 particular doctrines and or practices of the Catholic Church That's why he nailed his 95 theses or 95 arguments or objections. He nailed them to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. So I think on October 31st, we should have parties where we go dressed as our favorite reformers. And (laughs) only commit, though, if you're going to go Martin Luther, you got to shave the top of your head. So this Protestant Reformation or protest to reform what was believed and thereby what was practiced, that Protestant Reformation was born out of this Catholic priest reading Romans and being honest with himself about what he was reading. This is why one of the five solas that came out of the Reformation was sola scriptura or scripture alone, which was one of the primary causes for Luther's excommunication from the Catholic Church because he was denying papal authority, arguing, no, the Pope doesn't decide what is true, Scripture does. Placing authority on God's Word, not on a flawed human being who will be born and die and will sin and will make mistakes. Well, it'd be cool if he makes mistakes too. While he will most certainly make mistakes, as all of us have and do. Last time I preached two weeks ago as we were wrapping up Romans chapter 4, we'll be in chapter 5 today, we concluded with those five solas. Sola being the Latin term for only. That's why you have a solo or you're alone. Sola meaning or being sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, soli Deo gloria, meaning what we covered at the end of that lesson being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, unto the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas, the five alones that came out of the Reformation primarily around the doctrine of justification, which is what we're going to be talking about at length today. Kind of today's message is going to have two parts or two emphases, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification, which is where I get to scratch my erty Bible niche, if you will, with these theological terms, but 
I'm going to do my best to distill it in a way where it, uh, it's clear to all of us. One of the most clear themes of the book of Romans completely is that doctrine of justification. And I want to zoom in on that word justification for a moment. Have you had someone ever say to you something like, how do you justify that? How do you justify that? And they ask you that because they want to understand how you're okay with what you just did or what you just said. For example, Stephen, how do you justify rooting for the Cowboys when they've been a joke for like three decades? I don't know. How do you justify putting macaroni noodles in your chili? I know, we talk about that like once a year. Well, it's time because it's chili season, okay? Talking to you, Steve. I still love you. How do you justify Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving? Now, I got home yesterday from some meetings for the first time in nine years where my wife had already got some Christmas decorations out this early. We had to work through some things. And... It ended up with me going, fine, let's watch Home Alone right now. (laughs) How do you justify telling someone that they're coming over for hot tamales and serving what the rest of the known world calls Sloppy Joe? (laughs) Now listen, we've been making jokes, but we have now ventured into the category of blasphemy. When someone's taste buds are expecting the corn maize and the beef and the seasonings, and and I like Sloppy Joe, but some of y'all need to repent. (laughs) Justification. How do you present yourself as being justified or as being beyond condemnation for your actions? That's what justification means. In chapter 4, Paul made... The beautiful case that Abraham was accounted as righteous before God because he believed what God said. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Today, as we continue reading in chapter 5, we're going to see Paul unfold more, talk a little bit more about that justification and what it means for us Essentially, one of the most powerful verses is right here in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, when we see the implications of our being justified before God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your word was given to us as inspired by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I'm asking that your same Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst today, that you would be at work opening eyes to see the truth and to understand that if there are people whose eyes have been guarded from the truth, that those, those blinders would come off today. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to hearts, transforming us, making us new, that you would call those who have strayed back into your way and your path, that you would call those who have never known you to saving faith and repentance. Lord, give glory to yourself today by the work that you do through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. J.I. Packer, a great theologian who passed not too long ago, once said, justification is God's act of remitting the sins of guilty men and accounting them righteous freely by his grace through faith in Christ on the ground not of their own works, but of the representative law-keeping and redemptive blood-shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. Justification, the doctrine of justification, is how we understand that we who were sinners and still sin, how we can stand before a holy God who has seen everything we've ever done and not be condemned, rather be counted as family, as righteous, as justified before him, where if God said to us, how do you justify who you are before me? Most people, before knowing and understanding the truth of the gospel from God's word, would say, well, I, I, I've tried to do more good than bad. I feel like I was a pretty good person. At which point God would say, well, that's nice that you've done some good, but unfortunately, if you've done one thing wrong, you're condemned. And so that means that every single one of us, according to those first three chapters of Romans, man, what a slugfest those chapters were, just punching us in the gut going, hey, you're not good. You need a Savior. And it's the love and grace of God that puts that mirror up in front of our face, right? Amen? It's the love of God that confronts us so. Justification... Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 1 that we've been justified through his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. See, we were enemies with God. That's what Paul just said there in Romans chapter 5. He said that while we were enemies with God, at the right time God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Ernest F. Kevin said one time, Justification has to do not with our state, but with our standing. It refers to our position 
before God. Justification is a positional term. See, justification isn't something that actually changes who we are, although God does change who we are. He does give us new hearts. He does work in us to be formed more and more into the image of Christ. Justification is not talking about that internal transformation. Justification is talking about switching teams. Justification is God saying, I'm pulling you out of the kingdom of darkness and I'm pulling you into the kingdom of light. Justification is God saying, I paid for your debt with the blood of my son and now you are debt free and you are forgiven and you are in my family. And it's not because we do enough good things to earn being in the family or that we play good enough to make the cut and get on the team. It is that he is so loving and so gracious. Notice it said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we did everything wrong, God still looks on us with love and says, I love you enough to pay for your mistakes, to pay your sin debt and bring you back into my family. I remember when I was growing up, I I used to hear a lot of, of denial of the biblical truth that we Christians are sinners saved by grace. And the denial wasn't that we are saved by grace. The denial was more um, against the concept that we are still sinners. The statements I would hear were, I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And, And I would say, well, amen, yes. If you are a child of God, if you've been saved by grace through faith, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus positionally, while functionally, you still stumble. And although as a believer who has the Holy Spirit of God within you, who is maturing you and is growing you and is working you more and more into the image of Christ, listen, if the Apostle Paul who wrote what we're reading right now says, I haven't attained it yet, you haven't either. We haven't either. And yes, as we grow and mature in our faith, we should be sinning less and less and less. And the things that once were, were heinous vices for us should no longer be chains around us. Although that is true, man, we still sin sometimes. We still stumble sometimes. We can see in the book of Acts the apostles sinning and calling each other out where one withstands the other and calls him out for his sin and says, hey, you need to repent. This sin of partiality is not of God. And so this ancient idea, there was a, uh, an ancient heretical theologian named Pelagius who taught that once you're saved, you are sinless and you never sin again. That was long ago um, labeled as heresy. And, and it's foolishness. We've all seen and experienced that in our own lives And even in scripture, we can get to Romans 7 where this same letter, Paul says, man, the things I want to do, the good things I want to do, sometimes I don't do. And the good things I want to do, sometimes I don't do. It's evident that sin still dwells in my flesh where we get to Romans 8 where we have the war against the flesh and the spirit. See, I would say that saying, well, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus Therefore, I'm I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm just the righteousness. Well, I think that's drawing a false dichotomy. See, being a sinner is a function. If you commit murder, you are a murderer. 
If you lie, we like to say, well, I'm not a liar. I just, ever, you know, a little here, there, like little white lie. No, if you lie, you are a liar. If you sin, you are a sinner. This is why every single one of us need the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's not something where you just needed him one day, one time on the day you were justified by faith in Jesus Christ. I love the song we've sang a few times over the last few weeks. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Amen. See, we're taking a functional term and comparing it against a positional term. Almost like saying, well, I'm not a pitcher, I'm a baseball player. You're actually both. You don't have to try and cancel one out for the other. One is about something you do, while the other is about the fact that you're on the team. You made the cut, you're on the team, so to speak. Justification changes our standing or our position before God so that when you stand before God, and if you haven't heard or didn't know today, if you're new here, one day you will stand before God. Every single one of us. Scripture says that it is appointed unto man a day to die and then the judgment. And whether it is that we die and we go stand before the Lord, or it is, is it that Jesus Christ comes back, whichever is first, we don't know. You need to stay ready and stay faithful either way. All of that to say, when you stand before God, will you stand condemned or justified? All of us want to stand justified, right? The problem is that our proneness, our natural default of our, of our flesh is that we want to earn. We want to work. We want to do enough good. We want to clean up our mess and show God we mean it. And he's going, no, I cleaned up with my son, Jesus Christ. You just have to trust what he did. And the day, the minute that you do, you're justified. In a moment, in a moment, trusting in Jesus Christ is that moment you stand before God justified. No longer condemned. Justification isn't about what you do. It's about where you stand it wasn't your good works that made you right with God. And thankfully, by the grace of God, it is not our bad works that make us fall out of right standing with God. Listen, little side caveat here. If you sin, confess that sin. I guess I shouldn't say if, when. When you sin, man, the Holy Spirit convicts you of it and says, that's not okay, bud. I live in you, and I'm not okay with that being in you too. So we confess that sin and say, God, I'm sorry. I knew what I was doing. That was wrong. Please forgive me. And 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is good news, amen? The moment you have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, not just as a good teacher or a historical figure, not just as a prophet as the Muslim would believe, the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, raised from the dead, conquering sin and death, that faith that leads you to repent of sin and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that moment you repent and believe, 
your position changes from condemned to justified. Guys, this is good news. Thank you, Lord. The moment you believe and repent of sin, you change teams. You are no longer an enemy of God, but a son or daughter of God. You are justified before God. You are blameless, not accused. You are forgiven, not condemned. You are loved, not hated. You are welcomed, not rejected. And it doesn't have a thing to do with what you've done, but with what you have believed and have you trusted in what Christ has done. See, whereas before Christ, as Paul said right there in Romans chapter 5, before Christ, we were literally enemies with God. That's what Paul just said in chapter 5. While we were enemies with God, after coming to faith in Christ, we are made children of God. I'd say that's quite the upgrade. That's quite the upgrade, quite the exchange, right? We're not talking about going from two parties who kind of have a little bit of a a beef between each other, but we've learned how to get along, to being buddies. We're not talking about that kind of an upgrade. We're talking about going from being enemies of God to becoming beloved children of God. This is where Paul says, this is how God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Although Christ does, as I said, change us, grow us, mature us, form us more and more into his image, that is the doctrine of sanctification that we'll talk about a a little bit more in just a minute. That's basically the idea that as long as you're alive, God's working in you. You're not done yet if you're still here. Although Christ does continue his work of sanctification, which is ongoing, justification happens in an instant. Now, that's justification. Let's talk now for a moment about sanctification, the word that literally means to be set apart. This brings me back to Philippians 1.6, where Paul said to the church in Philippi, he said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day you were justified. No, it's not what it says. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That essentially is Paul saying the day that Christ comes back. Either, again, whether you die first or Christ comes back first, whichever it is, until that day comes God is working in you to both will and to do his good pleasure, Philippians chapter 2 would say. So chapter 1 is telling us that God began a good work in you, that moment that you were justified, the moment you switched teams. He's like, hey, you're on my team now. Let's work on your batting. Hey, you're on my team now. I want to work on your throwing game and your grounder game. Sorry, baseball's fresh on my mind because the Rangers won the World Series. I'm not excited or anything like that. I got to get the hat. The moment that you are justified then begins the work. After sanctification comes your justification. See, the the mistake that is often made is that we often put that cart before the horse and we look to sanctification or our growing, our improving, so to speak, first, 
rather than making sure first and foremost that by God's way and by God's standard, we have first come to him as justified. See, if you try and change who you are, if you try and become more godly or become a better person, if you try to become, uh, do everything you can by your white knuckling and your discipline and your drive, if you try and do everything you can to improve yourself, you might see incremental gains in some areas. The problem is you can do everything in your power to fix your finances, to fix your marriage, to fix your friendships, your relationships, to fix your job situation, to fix your 401k, to fix anything and everything you want your health, your fitness, your diet. You can do all the work that you want to to fix those things and still be an enemy of God. This is why it's damnable when church's primary message is, hey, here's three steps to improve your life. Here's five keys to God fixing your whatever. They are taking our eyes off of the primary message of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and trying to sell us a cheap momentary bill of goods where if you follow Jesus, he'll fix your things. Completely ignoring the biggest problem, that you are either condemned or justified. The message is a message of reconciliation where we're brought back to God through Jesus Christ and are justified before him. Thank God no longer condemned. Amen. Let me warn you about the risks that accompany self-help and self-improvement. I'm not condemning them, so to speak. The danger is that you can do all those things and still be an enemy of God. I'll say it again. You can, you can start learning and disciplining yourself to improve yourself and improve areas of your life. And the danger is that because of those changes, you convince yourself that you're a good person. And I would just send you back to Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 to get beat up a little bit by the truth and recognize all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God's not looking for us. He did not send Jesus to show us a better way to live. There is that. He, of course, has shown us a better way to live. But Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not to improve what we're not quite doing good enough. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to make the dead in sin alive in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to reconcile those who ran and rebelled away from him. Don't ever mix up what the message is. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are always, as long as the Lord graces me to serve in the position that I am in, we're going to be a gospel-centered church because the gospel is the message. And listen, if you hear, receive, and believe the gospel, it ripples out into all that other stuff. I'm not saying that if you believe the gospel, God's going to then start rippling out to fix everything that you don't like and making everything comfortable that you find uncomfortable, but he begins to change your heart in ways to where you navigate all that stuff differently, which we're going to read in just a minute. And when we are justified before God, we have peace with God. The United States military is the most powerful war machine that this earth has ever seen. 
our military today as it stands, the scale and the scope of destruction that, could, that the combined armed forces of the United States could bring to bear against a foe is frightening. The U.S. has over 15,000 military aircraft. 15,000. Beyond that, they have 11 Nimitz-class uh, Nimitz aircraft carriers, nine of which are usually deployed around the world in, in carrier strike groups that also have cruisers and destroyers and attack submarines. It is quite a, um, uh, how would you say, uh, a posse. It's quite the, the bearable force that can be sent anywhere around the world. Not only those things, but also not too long ago, we've got the brand spanking new Gerald Ford, the Ford class aircraft carrier, which they're making more, which is the most sophisticated advanced war machine and vessel that this world has ever seen. It's currently parked in the Mediterranean right now next to Israel. Not only those things, but there's the nuclear triad, the fact that we have a massive nuclear arsenal in in uh, missile silos, as well as in nuclear submarines all around the world, as well as in uh, stealth bombers, that nuclear triad that could wreak havoc on a scale the world has never seen. Not to mention only those things, but we also have the most capable, the most experienced, the most trained, the most professional, the most knowledgeable, the most insight-given soldiers in the world. Don't mess around and find out, Right? I did some research further than this, and you're like, what are, what are you do, why are you talking about this? Well, we're going to get there in just a second. I did some research and found out that the number one weakest military in the world, thoughts on who that might be, the number one weakest military in the world is the country of Bhutan in Asia. Bhutan boasting 8,000 troops. We have almost twice as many military aircraft as they have troops. They have about 8,000 troops. They have not one but two helicopters to our 15,000 aircraft. And I want you to imagine just for a moment, imagine Bhutan with their two helicopters and their 8,000 soldiers. What if they picked a fight with the U.S.? What would that look like? I think we'd be saying bye-bye Bhutan. And if you lived in Bhutan and you knew that your country had defied and challenged and attacked America and fought against America, and you heard that every single carrier strike group, every single stealth bomber, every single sailor, airman, soldier, marine, coast guardsman, and even Space Force guardian were deployed against you and impending upon you, how would you feel? you would be terrified. As you knew your destruction was imminent, you would be terrified. Now, what if all of that was true and you're sitting there, knees knocking, horrified over what was coming and all the aircraft carriers, actually there's not water on Bhutan, but every, all the forces got close and you could see all the vehicles and all the soldiers surrounding. And you just know the time has come. And what if they all stop and the commander-in-chief steps off and comes into your home and sits at your table and says, Hey, 
I'm actually offering you forgiveness. I want us to be at peace. Not only do I want us to be at peace, but I actually love you. And I actually care about you and want what's best for you. I actually even want to offer you U.S. citizenship. I even want to give you American rights and American prosperity. I want to give you all of that. What would that feel like? That's what justification ought to feel like. When we recognize the gravity of our sin and the fact that God sees and knows all, the fact that we will one day stand before him, man, when we do, our confidence and trust, our hope must be in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine when that commander-in-chief or that holy just judge that is God says to you, I actually want to forgive you. Not only do I want to forgive you, I paid for your forgiveness with the highest price. Not only do I want to fix what's wrong between us and reconcile the relationship, but I actually want to bring you close to me. I actually want you to be with me and I with you. I actually adore you. I actually delight in you. I actually love you. What kind of peace floods the heart at that moment? All of this is Romans 5.1. Having been justified by his blood, we have peace with God. Do you remember the day that you understood this, and maybe today's your first day, realizing that it's not your goodness that makes the overwhelming power of God staved off from you. It is the goodness of God, his love. It is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And not only does God withhold his judgment, not only does he withhold wrath, and set it aside. But to us who were his enemy, he says, come here. Be with me. That's why the apostle John says, behold, what manner of love is this that we would be called sons of God? What kind of love is that? It is an otherworldly love. It is a supernatural love. It is a love of God offered to each and every one of us. When Paul says, since we have been justified by his faith, we have peace with God. That isn't just talking about warm fuzzies or even feeling at peace in light of turmoil or hardship or suffering, that means we have that, the feeling of what it is to no longer be an enemy of God. Not only no longer enemies, but sons and daughters. This is why the gospel is not that we need to learn how to improve ourselves 
or think more positive thoughts and improve our positive self-talk. Man, the, the, if Paul was concerned about our positive self-talk, he wouldn't have written the first three chapters of Romans. In fact, he, he says things that make you go, I'm a worm. Paul said himself in chapter 7, what a wretched man I am. Paul's saying that of himself as he looks at his sin. But the glorious truth of the grace of God is that he doesn't just leave us as worms in the dirt. He picks us up out of the muck and mire of our sin and he places us in right standing with him justified. This is the gospel. This is the good news. You can look at your 401k tanking and you can say, oh, bummer, but I can be content in whatever state I am in. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me because I'm at peace with God. What's a 401k? What's money? Here today, gone tomorrow. You can hear that diagnosis from a doctor and say, but doc, did you know that I'm at peace with God? I'm going to pray and ask God to heal me, but if I'm not delivered from that and I go home, I'm at peace with him. You can have been rejected by earthly mother or father. And you can turn to true north and see the smile and the open arms and the loving embrace of your perfect heavenly father. You can pick up your phones, your social media, turn on your TVs and see war in the Middle East and protests in our cities and you can say, I am at peace with God. I'm at peace with the God who's sovereign over all the earth. What can man do to me? It can kill me. Okay? If that happens, I'm at peace with God. You can hear comments like, come on, man, get with the times. Don't you know that Christians are the most hateful, bigoted people in the world? How could you believe that fairy tale nonsense? You're so stupid. And you can go, oh, I might not be at peace with them, but I'm at peace with God. That same God who said, blessed are you when they persecute you and lie about you and revile you and say all sorts of evil things about you for my name's sake. Blessed are you when that happens for your reward is in heaven. See, when you are at peace with God, you have the peace of God. And as long as your internal peace is hitched to the wagon of your circumstances, you will always be about 30 seconds away from losing your peace. And as long as your hope is connected to your circumstances, your one notification, one text, one email, one call, one update, one bad report away from your hopes being crushed by breaking news or by suffering. This is why I love what Paul said after chapter 5, verse 1. So we look at this again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope, meaning what we're looking forward to, of the glory of God, meaning the day that we will be glorified and stand face to face and enjoy God forever. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are justified by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells you and just pours the love of God all over your heart to where you go, I'm loved by God. And you don't need me to tell you. You don't need someone else to counsel you and convince you. The Holy Spirit goes, you're loved, buddy. The God of heaven and earth loves you. And you know it internally. This is why chapter 8 says, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're sons of God. You don't need me to talk you into it. You don't need me to convince you. The Holy Spirit inside of you goes, you are loved and you're a son or daughter of God. Notice it's not self-improvement that leads to better versions of ourselves. It's suffering improvement. Sounds fun, right? How many of us are like, yeah, sign me up for that. I want some of that. We want to improve ourselves with our own will, power, self-determination, development skills. And Paul says, hey, actually, we rejoice in suffering. We're not very good at that. I'm not. We rejoice in suffering. Why? Just because suffering is fun? No, because suffering leads to endurance, Paul says. Well, why is that a good thing? He doesn't stop there. He says, well, because endurance produces character. You want want improvement? Don't try self-improvement. Let God work in you through the suffering that's in your life. You want to grow in character? Learn to rejoice in suffering. Sounds a whole lot like what we read in James chapter 1, right? James 1 where verse 2 he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you enter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Hello, Paul just said that the suffering produces endurance or perseverance. James said steadfastness. Do you see? They're agreeing here. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There he's talking again about the day that you go stand before the Lord, you will be perfected on that day. And until that day, God is still working in you, still pruning you, still refining you. And guys, I'd hate to break it to you, but scripture says a lot of that pruning and refining and maturing and growing comes through suffering. We don't like that. We don't want suffering. We don't want uncomfortable. We don't want difficult. We don't want hard. Why? Because we're American. (laughs) We want convenience. We want comfort. We want now. We want cushy. But God knows none of that helps develop our character. None of that works in us to be formed more and more into the image of Christ. See, God has justified us through Christ's suffering and he sanctifies us through our own suffering. 
You don't agree with that? You don't like that? I don't, I don't particularly like that either. And I need to let Scripture, like Martin Luther, I need to let Scripture reform my mind to agree with what God says and not what I think should be true. And not what my sinful flesh wants to be true. God justified us in a moment by, uh, by faith in Christ's suffering. And through the rest of our lives, it's not only through suffering. He sanctifies us many ways, but it is definitely through suffering that he also sanctifies us. And maybe you've been sold a bill of goods by a, a TV preacher or by a bestseller, a New York bestseller that you pulled off of the Christian section at the bookstore. Please be careful for what gets labeled as Christian at Barnes and Nobles. I'd say take it up with James 1 where he says, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When steadfastness is at its perfect work, you'd be perfect, lacking nothing. I'd say take it up with Romans chapter 5 where he says, rejoice in suffering because that leads to perseverance and perseverance leads to character and character leads to hope and hope will not put us to shame or disappoint us because the love of God's been shed abroad in our holy in our hearts by the Holy Spirit wherein we look to that final day with our eternal hope I would say argue with Romans 8 17 where it says and if children if we're children of God then we're heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him provided, that's a, a qualitative word, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'd say take it up with Paul there. If James and Paul aren't enough, I'd say take it up with the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 and, 14, or 12 and 13 where he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes against you or comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Just like Paul says, that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character and character produces hope and that hope of, of the glory that is to come has been shed, that love has been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit, the same way that James said, endure or count it all joy when you fall into trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness is at its perfect work, that you be perfect, lacking nothing. On that perfect day of Jesus Christ, the day that we stand before him, even Peter's going, man, why are you acting surprised when you're suffering? Instead, rejoice in it with your hope that you're sharing in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, talking about the day, the day that is coming, the day that makes all of us agree with scripture and say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Please Lord Jesus, come quickly. Why? Because our hope is that we get to see him and behold his glory unveiled in the fullness of his presence. And we have tastes here and now, but we get the feast then and there. And that's our hope. And as long again as you hitch that wagon of your hopes and your peace to how things are going in your life and in this world, it's gone 30 seconds from now. 
But when you hitch your hope and your peace into your right standing with God and the inheritance you have that you will experience one day, they're anchored. We are justified before God by grace through faith and we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, often through suffering. And the truth that all of us need to hear is that we can rejoice in our sufferings, in our tests and in our trials because God is at work in us, producing character in us that leads to perseverance and endurance unto that eternal hope of standing before God. And listen, that is our hope. Why? Why is it not our fear? Because we've been justified by a son and we're at peace with God. Amen.